Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. I'm Dana Zook. And Dana, you have a very special guest with us today talking about a topic that I know hardly anything about. So why don't you, you know, introduce our guest and, and kind of give us an overview of what we're going to talk about today. So Dr. Romano Schmidt is from Lollamond Animal Nutrition, and he is recently here in Oklahoma presenting at a silage meeting we're having in Major County with a Major County OSU Extension. Lollamond Animal Nutrition focuses on a lot of different products. I'm going to have Renato talk about that. And he uh, graciously came here to give us a little background in silage. I know silage is kind of a niche topic in Oklahoma. It's, of course, normal for feedlot producers to use silage, but uh, cow-calf producers, not so much. So So we're just here learning the basics. So Renato, tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about Lollum and Animal Nutrition. Okay, so Trent, Dana. It was, it is a pleasure being here and I'm really excited to speak a little about silage and uh, the company I work for. Uh, I'm originally from Brazil. I grew up on a dairy operation that became a beef in the early 80s. Then I came here to US for my PhD and it was focused on silage fermentation. Then I got hired by Lalaman Nutrition it's been about over 13 years already. And I give uh, technical support on anything that's related to silage making or inoculants, management, all these things. And uh, Lalaman, it's a Canadian company, it's a privately owned company. It's been around for about sort of like a century already. It starts as with uh, baker's yeast and then in the 70s, 80s starts to diversifying, and nowadays anything that is uh, yeast or a bacteria, we have something going on. So we have all these different uh, sectors of the company. We have animal nutrition that I'm working. We have human nutrition, plant care, uh, biofuels, spirits, baker's yeast. I mean, something about brewing earlier. Yeah, brewing. I mean, the, the, the market of uh, wine and uh, sparkling in, in Europe is basically like 100% ours wow. with the yeast. Interesting. So a- anything that is like a little, a little thing with the bacteria, a little thing with uh, yeast, even like some byproducts, something like the flavor you see on goldfish or Doritos, it's something that we're involved. Cool. Well, my kids would be real impressed with that because goldfish go through my house. Probably we should have stock in the goldfish or the Doritos probably. Yeah, and you're with an and you're on the animal nutrition side. Yes, and uh, the the base of of the company, you know, it is fermentation, and it's something that if we think, you know, it's been done for I don't know how many, even like thousands of years, maybe. Mm-hmm. So it's something, you know, it's fairly simple. It's something that we still do, you know, we we do pickling, we do uh, making sauerkraut, and it's kind of like the same basis when we think of silage making. So we just need some means of preservation. In case of silage, it would be no oxygen 
and the acidity and that's pretty much it mm -hmm. so when we do you know we do some canning or you just pickle something you always have to keep everything under the brine or the liquid mm -hmm. so you don't have that oxygen that will allow molding or some other bad stuff to happen okay well so what we know that silage has been used for hundreds of years in you know dairies feedlot cattle feeding that sort of thing in recent past there's been a lot of smaller producers looking to silage as to make a, maybe complement the forage resources we have um, harvest the forage at peak nutritional value to preserve for later so in oklahoma right now it would be we're harvesting maybe wheat silage or triticale silage. You could call it haylage, whatever you do. But we're doing that right now to preserve for, to use maybe November, December, January. That sort of time period when the forage resource in Oklahoma, for the most part, is pretty low for cow-calf. Now, we do have wheat pasture in Oklahoma. Um, but what do you see silage offering some of these small cow-calf enterprises, smaller producers, maybe feeding cattle. What do you see that offering, um, silage offering them from, an, you know, the nutritional value just from the silage standpoint? Yeah, as I said, when we, I work a lot more with, uh, with the dairy operations, some uh, large feed yards, and that's a total different situation. Mm -hmm. So they have something for the whole year. And uh, this that you mentioned, and actually, reminds me when I was, you know, growing up in Brazil, that even, you know, around the eighties, we would just make some corn silage or some tropical grass silage because we have the, the, the summer or our wet season in the end of the year, okay. like December, January, February, and our winter, it's in uh, June, July, August, but our winter is like the 70s <laughs> but it's we refer as a dry season not cold season okay. so that is like it's, it's bone dry and that's why we need that silage so it's pretty much like we have an excess in the summer you know pretty much like here mm -hmm. and we want to harvest preserve for that dry season so i think it's it's one point you can have some really valuable feed depending when you harvest the stage of maturity and everything how the process goes uh, I think it's really important standpoint of the uh, fiber digestibility mm -hmm. as well for this type of operation. And, you know, animals, they, they like some consistency on the feed. So it's also to have also important to have that uh, option and not depend on buying, you know, supplemental feed, especially mm -hmm. when we see the, <laughs> the price of corn right now. Absolutely. So... Originally, I came to know Dr. Renato Schmidt. Schmidt he came... Well, he helps coordinate a conference out of Nebraska, and so they focus on some silage topics up there, very focused on that because of the feedlot industry. And so I brought him a couple years ago to one of our cattle conferences, and then I've invited him back for the small regional meeting. But I just wanted him to come talk a little bit about the harvest, the fermentation, and the feed out of silage and some of the things we can simply do the basics of silage, what we can simply do to um, improve the production, improve efficiency, and make it useful, like you said, on maybe some smaller operations, consistency, and hopefully cost-effective, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can talk a little bit about the inoculants at the end. Um, so 
from a harvest standpoint, Renato, what are some things we can do at harvest to ensure a high quality silage just kicking off right away? Okay, so we need a high quality forage. Mm-hmm. So that's what I hope you would say. <laughs> yeah, we need, yeah, we need that high quality forage. Uh, of course, good management level, silage management to end up with a high quality silage. You know, either if you start uh, with a forage that's too dry or too mature, or it's just way too wet, then you're gonna have some issues during the fermentation and that's your starting point. So you're just gonna try to be saving or preserving all those nutrients in dry matter. So if you start with the material that's not really good, you know, you cannot expect to open the silo and see something that's like an alfalfa haylage. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, you mentioned inoculants and, uh, and I've heard some companies that say, no, no, you use my product and you're gonna turn straw into something, into mm-hmm. part of silage. And you know, it's not like that. Okay. There will actually be a little bit of losses just because we have that fermentation going on. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's really important just to have that forage at the right maturity, depending on, on, on what the goals are for that operation. Some people, they accept that trade-off of quality for quantity. So I'm not too worried about the nutrients. I want more that scratch factor. So I want more the yield. So, you know, that's fine. But also it's important to be on this moisture range or dry matter range for the fermentation to occur. Okay. So our moisture target that we're looking at, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's between 30 and 40, or our dry matter is between 30 and 40%. Is that right or correct? Uh, me? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's about. Okay. I mean, I like to be on like for corn, for instance, I like to be 32, 38. Okay. See, you know? Renato is very specific. Uh, yeah, a little. A little <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit more specific. A little bit. I don't know, a few years ago, people would say 32, 35, but then we start seeing more the effects on the starch accumulation and the okay. energy value of the crop. Then it's like, you know, you, it's okay to be a little more, just a little more mature. And I think like haylage in general, I would try to be around 35 and okay. 40%. Okay. And this is something that I I, I, I was talking to the late Dr. Bolson once, and he said, all right, Renato, I'd rather much be on the dry side with some issues during packing, maybe some feed out instability, than being too wet, end up with a bad fermentation, like a clostridial fermentation and you cannot do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So between these, it's, it's, it's around like the mid-30s, maybe touching the 40s, you know, okay. it depends what type of crop. But if I would have to choose between one or the other, uh, I would try to be a little more on the dry side. Okay, all right. So from, you know, wheat forage, which is very wet, um, we're kind of getting into that drier stage right now, but that's kind of what we would be looking at. Well. I'm sitting here trying to listen to you too, and, and I've heard a lot of percentages. Were you talking about the moisture of the crop or the dry matter? Dry matter. Dry matter. Dry matter. Yes, yeah. the dry matter. Yes, the dry matter. So the moisture would be, you know, 60, 60. Extremely high. Yeah, yeah, yes, very high moisture. If you think about wheat pasture for cattle, if that's something help people understand, like it, it's very high moisture. Because I'm an old hay guy, so this uh-huh. is. <laughs> and I think most of the producers will be, you know, that's what they're used to listening to. So, yeah, we're talking about something that's extremely wet compared to what we're used to putting in storage. Yeah, mm-hmm. so so hay would be 85% dry matter, mm-hmm. um, if that gives people some context. And 15% moisture, we're talking 60, 65% moisture, 
35% dry matter. I was going to clarify that, but that's no. very good. I'm glad you threw that in there. But that is that is something to kind of wrap your head, mind around. And so I do have that question, Rodano. So uh, forage moisture at the time of chopping and packing, that's critical. But you would prefer to be dry, a little drier if necessary, because we are all at the mercy of yeah. the silage processors if we don't do it ourselves. Yeah, if if I have like to just like to choose like clean, like gonna be ch more like on the wet side or more on the dry side. Between the two, I would you know <laughs> choose to be on the dry side. Maybe you have to compromise some of the chop length, chop a little shorter because it's gonna be harder to pack. You might have some issues with the air that will be trapped in the forage mass, especially during feed out. That you know it's you open the silo, you're gonna have air entering the silo again, mm -hmm. going through the the forage the silage mass, and that will lead to spoilage. You know that's uh, I'll, I'll be discussing tomorrow. Like air is the worst enemy of of ensiling in the beginning of the process, during the early fermentation, and especially during feed out. And it's 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 like with anything that we buy you go to the grocery store and for for example we buy a loaf of bread mm -hmm. so we look at the package there is the expiration date there, there are some preservatives that they use some chemicals calcipropionate or benzoates and one day we still have half of the load the loaf and it's the expiration date so what do we do mm. we put them in the free put in the fridge so now you have a different means of preservation. So you got the low temperature that will delay that microbial activity. Even though it's still like wrapped, but we open, we grab a slice and close and open and close. Mm -hmm. One day we open the fridge, what happens? You see green, red, <laughs> gray, you got, you got molds all, all over there. So there is that, you know, that expiration date and silage is no different. So you're gonna have a bunch of nutrients you do have some organic acids, you get the low pH, but once air is in the system, then it's just kind of like a, a matter of time. So we encourage producers, for corn silage is different, for, for wheat silage, like a half of an inch chop, half to three eighths, is that what you, it's a little bit shorter because of the hollow stem, yeah, right, mm -hmm, than exactly. corn silage. So that that hollow stem, we encourage them to chop it a little bit shorter than a corn silage, um, just so we can get a better pack. Mm -hmm. The packing, is important from what I hear. Packing and removing the oxygen. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I, I even have a slide for tomorrow about the hollow stems. Yes. Uh, yeah, with uh, with the cereal grains, it, it, it's, it, it's a little more specific because of how the structure of the plant is. But then it, it goes back to what the goals are on that particular operation. So if you harvest like really young still like on that vegetative phase you're gonna have a lot of protein fiber that's very digestible so it's a very it's very nutritive it's, it's very rich high you know tdn values mm -hmm. but then if you start waiting a little then the crude protein goes down you get a little on that starch accumulation but you lose also a lot on the fiber digestibility so you're gonna have a drop on the nutrient value anyways but then you get more on the yield. And then when you start getting on the dry side, then it starts to become a little more of a challenge just because, as you said, you got the hollow stems and it would just be, you know, hard. And honestly, <laughs> 
these cereal crops, you know, the small grains, they are just not that easy. It's just hard to have some consistent, you know, moisture or dry matter and packing and chop length. It's, I, I think the other crops are a little easier to, to deal with. And sometimes it seems everything was okay, but we open the silo, we look at that with age or treat or whatever, and you, you just see that's not as consistent. It's not, it's just not that easy. So talking about a little bit about TDN, so talking about digestibility too, it improves the digestibility a little bit. It doesn't necessarily change the protein or anything like that, right? Is the protein, how much does the protein change from, you know, harvest to after the fermentation process? Oh, what during that, the insiding yeah, process. Okay. I mean, does it change at all? I mean, that's kind of like what I think a lot of people have questions about. They think that it maybe improves it a lot. Like you can take, I mean, like you said, you need mm -hmm. to have a quality forage product, but does it nutritionally from the, for the cow or the dairy cow, does it improve the, the nutritional quality of it? That's no. a kind of a roundabout question. But. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it improves. It's more likely, you know, if something goes wrong to decrease mm -hmm. the quality or nutrient value. Um, I think one exception is with uh, corn silage because with the length of storage, the starch becomes more available for digestion. So that's a particular case. Mm -hmm. But in terms of fiber digestibility, I've seen some studies and I there's like no really influence between the day the crop was ensiled and when you open the silo, it's pretty much like the same. It's pretty stable. Mm -hmm. Now, protein, always there will be some protein breakdown. Okay. So it's kind of like the opposite. Maybe, okay. you, you know, we analyze and we analyze for not true protein. It's we analyze for total nitrogen. Yes. Mm -hmm. But then when we ensile the plant, what happens? You chop the forage and it's almost kind of like a sign, a sign to, okay, I'm dying and I need to recycle the nutrients or get that stuff back in the soil. And the plant's own enzyme, you know, it starts to digesting. So that's the first step of that protein breakdown. Okay. So it's more like the enzymes from the, you know, from the plant. Interesting. That's that's a totally different way to think about it. Yeah, and 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 there's like a second way. This will be microbial. Mm -hmm. So microorganisms, especially those that are undesirable, they're gonna continue that process, and then we start seeing a lot more ammonia nitrogen, soluble protein, crude protein, just like okay. breaking into pieces. Okay. All right. So let's talk about fermentation. Now that we're there, we're talking about it a little bit. So that plant is chopped, and like you said, there's like natural bacteria and stuff on the plant mm -hmm. that kind of like starts to break it down a little bit, right? When it's ensiled. So that's like the first wave of type of that ensiling process. Yeah, in terms of the fermentation mm -hmm. per se, you know, fermentation is, uh, the ensiling is a naturally occurring process. You know, you go to the field, chop the plant, bring it to the silo, pack, cover, I hope, yeah, we hope. <laughs> and it will become silage some way, you know, mm -hmm. or another, because the plant's colonized by the desirable lactic acid bacteria. They are the real good actors on this whole process. But also we're bringing some fungi, yeast and molds, enterobacteria, clostridia, and, and a bunch of other microorganisms. They are not really desirable. 
but they are there and they will play a role in this process. And in the end of the day, you know, the silage, the fermentation will be dictated by that particular microorganism that will dominate the fermentation. So if something happens and the Clostridia takes over, that's it. We that's got bad. that Clostridia fermentation smells like death. <laughs> it's dark, slimy. Yes. It's just horrible. That is bad. And that can happen fairly so, easily. There's Clostridial everywhere. Clostridia yeah, in the environment. Yeah, everywhere. they're everywhere. You can get contaminated by, especially when you do, you know, the haylage or the cereal grains, they can come with the soil particles that will be a contaminant anyways. Well, and, and so producers may, un, they may recognize Clostridia from, you know, vac vaccinating calves for Clostridia because it is in the environment, black leg, the black leg shot. Um, so like you said, it's just everywhere. And so if we get that silage, in, I call it infected with this, I don't <laughs> know if that's the right word, contaminated <laughs> with this Clostridia, then that, that can be really um, deadly for cattle. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and this is one of the reasons that, you know, it would be like the first reason why to use a microbial inoculant because you just use a beneficial bacteria for this particular process. So you're adding like, you know, good guys <laughs> for mm -hmm. the microbial war. And you, you always, you're always going to see a positive outcome. So I've seen like many, many studies, meta-analyses with a bunch of data and sometimes the improvement, it's very little, but it's still positive. And sometimes it's big. It, you know, it's, it's hard to predict you know, the magnitude of response, but it's always going to be positive. It's just a pretty good like insurance policy, if you yeah. will. Well, that's a good way to put it. Well, if some of these inoculants help mask some problems if we didn't get packed as tight as we wanted to, or we didn't get sealed as well, could, does some of that help? Or, or do we just have to do that perfectly? I mean. Oh, I like this question. <laughs> I, I had this question actually a couple of months ago. I was talking to a, a, a producer, uh, a gentleman that I think he's the manager on a feed yard in, uh, I don't remember if it's Kansas or Nebraska, but uh, we were talking about this process and I went check the silage and just explaining how everything was. And I mentioned about a particular inoculant more for this feed out stability. And then he asked me, I was like, okay, so if I use this product, I don't have to worry about packing. And not, <laughs> not uh. like that. <laughs> we have to think that if we give the best conditions for the inoculant, for the lactic acid bacteria, we're going to get the best out of the product. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, as I said, if, if you think that, oh, I'm going to make some sauerkraut and you do something that's not really right, then it's not going to taste, you know, well when you when you're going to eat it. But uh, on the other hand, I've seen some occasions where the inoculant avoid like a complete disaster. Avoid uh, clostridial fermentation on uh, grass haylage, uh, reduce like feed out losses in half and nutrient losses as well. So I, I, I would say that you get the best of the product if you give like the best conditions, but then you, you're still gonna get a benefit even if you have some challenge. Mm -hmm. And then I think one is really important because in terms of challenge like uh, 
you got hailed, oh, the yeah. plant has some physical damage, it's more like part of entrance for molds, for yeast. That's another reason to use a beneficial microbe like a lactic acid bacteria. Well, you're, you know, at the mercy of the environment and the weather, like you said. So um, that's a really good kind of push for using some sort of inoculant product to kind of help that. So before we move on to feed out, let's talk about just the acids. So you mentioned lactic acid is, they're the good the good guys. Uh-huh. But then we also hopefully don't have much of these other ones. Acetic acid, right? Uh, they're players in the game, right? Are they players in the game? Well, acetic, it's actually a pretty good one. It is a good one? Okay. Yeah. All right. I think you're correct. Go ahead and correct me. Sure. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, we it's 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 a little bit of a catch twenty two that in the beginning of the process, you know, we want to see that fast fermentation, that sharp drop on the pH, and pickle everything as fast as possible. Pickle. This yeah, pickle. yeah. <laughs> the, right. the soon we do, you know, it's it's shorter, it's short and sweet. You preserve more of dry matter nutrients. You don't have microorganisms. You know, they will use some stuff. Of course, they are alive. They're gonna produce a little bit of heat. So shorter the better and we're looking for that lactic acid Mm -hmm. now the lactic acid is a strong acid so it's really important for the ph drop came down to a ph of four Mm, yeah four is a good average would be maybe a little lower for corn silage will be lower for some uh wet forage then we think of more like a haylage or legumes would be in the mid fours, okay. especially some dry forage as well, because we have less moisture. Okay. So that's going to restrict the fermentation, you know, in general. Okay. So I derailed your train of thought. So. <laughs> yeah, well, this drop in pH is to prevent mold. And, it's just you. Yeah, it's just to stop all microbactivity. No. In theory including lactic acid bacteria. It's just to preserve and mm-hmm. stop everything. But during storage, there will be like a little bit of some microbes still alive and some small changes going on, but not anything near that initial fermentation that we convert a bunch of sugars into lactic acid. Now, there's a little problem with the lactic acid though. Okay. When we open the silo, we got the air back, and the spoilage yeast, they will start that process of heating during feed out, uh, deterioration. They will become active and they can actually use that lactic acid as a food source. So there's a little, a little bit of sugars oh. that are like residual from the process, lactic acid. And they can use that stuff. So it's, you know, it's not good. Okay. <laughs> you, you really want the beginning. And then in the end, it can just become a big problem. Okay. So that's when the acetic acid and sometimes propacid, but you don't see very often. Okay. But on the bacterial fermentation, acetic acid has uh, strong antifungal properties. Okay. So it will keep those, you know, spoilages, some molds quiet for a little longer and just give like a little better uh, shelf life, if you will. Okay. And you know, acetic, propionic acid, they they work kind of like the same. And when we think of a preservative, you know, the first acid that comes to mind is propacid. Okay. So they 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 work pretty much the same. Okay, so we've got this, we've 
packed this silage in a bag or in a silo, hopefully with it covered to, you know, get an oxygen-free environment. And then we fermented. We talked about a few of the different acids that would happen and down to that pH level. Um, so how long would you think that best to store? Um, how long does the fermentation process take and how long until um, we start feed out? <laughs> I would say a good, uh, I think in general, like four weeks. Okay. It'll be a good time just to have like a more stable product because in that first week, you probably already be on that terminal pH and people think, oh, everything is done. Uh, it's not that, it's not yet. It's not really a stable product. So ideally, you would try to wait a little more. And, you know, people have to, you know, they have to pick their battles. Sometimes they're like, hey, I have to put up this forage and start feeding out from the other end mm -hmm. just because, you know, they don't have feed or something happened. And, you know, it is what it is. Uh, in terms of corn silage, because of that point on the starch digestibility that improves the storage, I would recommend, if possible, wait a good three months. Okay. Three, maybe four. Okay. Even even like a month and a half at least, you can see like a nice jump on the digestibility of the starch. Just because some of the enzymes, the acid, they start just like breaking this uh, matrix that's formed in the kernel with the protein in the starch. Okay. And then the starch becomes more and more available for digestion. Okay. So... Harvest, fermentation, and storage. I think we're going to cap it off there. This concludes part one of our two-part series on silage making. We encourage you to check back next week for part two, where we talk more about feed out and utilizing the silage pile that we've talked about producing. We hope you have a good week, and we'll catch you next time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again and we'll talk to you soon.